Coronavirus has hit property investors pretty hard and some harder than others. In this week's episode, we're going to get an insider's perspective and discover what types of investment property has proven to be the most vulnerable to the pandemic and what has been the most resilient. The market is not collapsing. Uh, We are renting properties and I think the press have ramped up um, what we're seeing on the ground, to be honest. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au We're joined today by Lisa Inge, Principal of Sydney Property Management Specialists Let's Rent. Lisa is also an active member of the REI New South Wales Property Management Chapter, which gives her a broader insight into what's happening with tenants and landlords beyond the inner Sydney market. I invited Lisa to come and talk with us following a conversation I had with her last week about some fascinating human behaviour that has affected vacancy rates. If you're interested in the lay of the land in other cities, please don't tune out. Much of what's been happening locally is relevant to other locations. Hello, Lisa. Hi, how are you? Hi, Lisa. Good to speak again. And you too. So property investors were immediately impacted by the lockdown. So what landlords would you say have been the most affected? Landlords in the inner city have been most affected and they are um, most affected because of the jobs that people hold close to me. So such as in hospitality, people who work at um, airports, for example. Uh, So you can imagine um, there's no students in the inner city either. So those share house type locations such as uh, Redfern, uh, Darlinghurst, um, also around Darlington as well, we're finding that those properties are quite difficult to re-rent and we're, we're really offering those tenants rent relief as well to to maintain those tenancies. Mm. So when you say um, the people in share houses, so you're talking like, you know, a group of few, a few friends, et cetera, um, or bigger bigger properties like three, four bedders that are hard, they're harder to rent out if the tenants leave at the moment. Is that what you're, you're seeing or yes. is it more the apartments? No, it's absolutely uh, houses that are most affected in the inner city areas. But yeah. it's true to say that, you know, a lot of the demographic close to the city have been most impacted. And so it doesn't really yeah. matter if it's a house or an apartment. We're generally seeing that um, if we're going back to market, that rent, see, yeah. rents are declining by between 8 and 15%. So with the share houses, are you talking about, is there a demographic that's sort of like young people who might be students or might be working in hospitality who aren't earning as much money, they're paying fairly cheap rent because the houses themselves aren't that well maintained or they're pretty old and decrepit in many cases. And I remember, and Lisa actually was my property manager when I first bought my house in Newtown where university students were living Mm -hmm. in it and I bought it to renovate and for a period of time there those tenants were still there. I would imagine... I would have found that really difficult to re-rent that house in the condition that I bought it in. 
Is is that one of the the factors that goes into this, Lisa? That that these houses, these share houses, have been or landlords have been able to get away with not necessarily maintaining these properties um, because it's been cheap rent, and now those tenants aren't around. They are around, Veronica, and it's that's a great question because. We, we haven't seen that much movement of tenants, perhaps younger people moving home. Um, and it just depends what sort of government relief that they are receiving um, as to whether or not um, we're able to maintain the tenancy. So, for example, um, if we're talking about people in hospitality who are perhaps foreigners who are not going to receive any support, well, those are the people that are, have actually already left Australia. So if those properties are coming back onto the market, absolutely, if they're not in great condition, well, who is going to rent them? There are no students around. The likelihood of hospitality people moving from one house to another is slim because if they don't have a job or they're on JobKeeper, then they don't really stack up as a potential tenant. It's a really good point you said there around people leaving Australia. Um, you know, because certain parts of Sydney, you know, certain countries and demographics are, are very common to be the, the 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 renters, I guess. Like in Bondi, it might be English and Irish, etc. Yes. Have you seen that there's been a big reduction in kind of people here on sort of holiday visas um, and have all gone home? Oh, without question, and I think that the area that re- you refer to, Bondi, um, and around the beaches, has particularly been affected. Um, yeah. But obviously, we, we have a very high proportion of uh, foreigners in hospitality. So yeah. it, because yeah. of a lot of those people leaving, um, the, the number of people looking for rental properties has obviously declined. Yeah, so it's a bit of a double whammy. Not only the country they you know, they haven't got here, but also in the industry most affected. That's right. Um, in terms of the kind of new stock hitting the market as well, has, have you seen that you know, there's been a lot of towers in the process of getting built? Um, they're still, they're still completing and they're still hitting the rental market. Have you seen that really impact certain pockets? Um, I personally haven't. Um, in our portfolio, we don't tend to uh, manage a lot of new stock and, and there's a reason for that because often the developer does a deal with a particular uh, real estate agency. Um, but there's no question that any new stock coming onto the market is not going to achieve the same sort of price that it would have previously. And that's simply due to the the overall market adjustment. It's funny, back in episode 56, we interviewed you, Lisa, and we talked back then about vacancy rates. And we also talked about the fact, so that was in February 2019. Mm -hmm. And we were discussing then about the rising vacancy rate in Sydney, which was really coming off the back of a lot of this new development. And and how that, that was a ripple effect, because, you know, you got concentrated hundreds of new apartments coming on. And of course, that then bleeds into surrounding suburbs and even suburbs, a few suburbs away. Um, impacting on the vacancy rate and and putting a dampening effect on rents uh, across the city, really. So yes, and I and I remember asking you at that point, you know, how long does it take for for that new stock to be absorbed into the general marketplace? So is I guess we haven't really quite recovered from that, had we? When this hit, well, when you look at vacancy rates in Sydney, they've been steadily rising um, from about two thousand and seventeen. So um, whether that's due to new stock, I mean, I would have thought it is due to new stock. Um, And just to sort of digress slightly, 
um, one of the areas that's been hardest hit is is the CBD, which does have a lot of new stock, and the um, vacancy rate in uh, Sydney CBD is fourteen point eight percent. One of the uh, committee members uh, has a has a portfolio based entirely around new stock, and his vacancy is about thirty percent. So it's wow. been very very hard hit. Yeah, I mean. Because the thing is that with the CBD, for instance, you've got student accommodation, obviously, you've got a lot of, you know, some new stock, or I'm, I'm sort of trying to think where has been the new buildings other than... Oh, around Barangaroo. Oh, okay, and, of course. You know, King Street, um, all along there. Yeah, okay. So you've got sort of uh, overseas students and, and whoever they were targeting at in terms of renting those properties out, mm. but you've also got the Airbnb market too, don't you? Yeah. Very, very true. And obviously, you know, when I spoke to um, the guy who owns uh, the portfolio with new properties specifically in the city but other areas as well, you know, he's just saying nobody wants to move to the city at this point in time. So if you're already living in the city, okay, that's fine. But why would you move into the city? Well, certainly a couple of months ago, there would be no reason to do so. Well, yeah, because you're not, you don't need to have an easy commute to work, do you? You don't. And I think that there's been a shift in people's thinking as we've all, all been reading in the press as well, and obviously experiencing ourselves personally, is that the um, opportunity uh, to work from home is there and um, it's probably going to remain part of people's uh, work um, flexibility going forward. You said there's one interesting behavioural change there that people potentially don't really want to live in the city because they're not going to work there. What's some of the other behavioural changes that you've seen? Like have people been more, you know, I guess uh, not preferring to kind of move in with a number of people, like they're wanting more one-bedders and studios because of, you know, in COVID they have to share apartments with three or four people and that was a nightmare, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I haven't seen that, I must say. I I don't think people are reticent to move in with other people. I just think that if people are able to maintain where they're living right now, that, that's going to be their preference unless they've been hit very hard financially. And an example of that might be someone who has actually been made redundant, um, for example, in the fashion industry, um, uh, which has been very hard hit, uh, who, who just doesn't have the capacity to pay the rent going forward. So they're the types of people that are actually moving and they're probably likely to be moving you know, further away from the city. Yeah, and then you've got, I guess, migration as well. So it's kind of yeah. lots of different um, strings to this. You know, you've got Airbnb, more hitting the market, new stock, um, mass, you know, a, a foreigners kind of moving back overseas, um, you know, because they're not getting any support, no one really coming here as well. That's right. So there's lots of, you know, problems here with, you know, supply not being able to rent out. What are, yeah. what are some of the challenges you're seeing on the property management front in terms of, you know, people who have lost their jobs or people whose income has been re- um, reduced, how are you kind of managing these kind of tricky situations where you've got kind of conflicting interests? Very carefully, Chris, and yeah. with a, a great um, amount of responsibility, I think, on our shoulders in terms of trying to mediate appropriate outcomes between uh, both tenants and owners who are probably affected in one way or another, and I say one way or another because it might not necessarily be financial, it might be, um, you know, an emotional impact as well. And certainly in the early stages of COVID, we saw that um, 
people were frightened, um, they were anxious, they were, some people became aggressive. Um, yeah. And I, I'm really talking about tenants in, in, in this context because they didn't really know what was going to happen. So I think yeah. all of that is absolutely understandable. Um, and the impact on landlords has certainly been there as well. So we, we had one situation where um, a client uh, lost her job, her husband lost his job. Yeah. They had a mortgage on the house that they were living in and the tenant yeah. was asking for rent relief. And the owner yeah. just was not in a position to offer that. So it was a really stressful and emotionally charged negotiation between the two parties. And, you know, I certainly took on board my responsibility um, to ensure that the information that we were be- being provided was uh, valid and that the tenant did actually qualify for rent relief. Now, in this yeah. instance, um, I'm not going to deny there were some difficult conversations with the, with the tenant, but he didn't qualify in the end. So we, we were able to jump out of that situation, say to the client, look, no need to be concerned. Um, you're not actually required under the legislation to offer relief. So let's go there on the legislation um, in terms of, de- you know, determining what is actually qualifying yes. and what's not, mm-hmm. because I'm sure, you know, there's probably a lot of misnomers around it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there would be. Look, I... <laughs> I was actually quite pleased with the uh, the way that the legislation was structured because it gave us some guidelines. And I think, well, I don't know if anybody is aware, but um, Vic, uh, sorry, uh, Queensland came out with their legislation after New South Wales, and there was a, an absolute uproar because there was no measure of affected um, household income. So in New South Wales tenants have to prove that their household been has sorry their net household income has been affected by 25% or more and that's mm-hmm. sounds easy doesn't it <laughs> but yeah. it's not necessarily that easy and I'll, I'll give an example where you've got a situation where you've got a sole trader who qualifies for job keeper um, but actually the net result on their household income is actually a decline of only eleven percent because uh, yeah yeah so let's say their income well, might the, the job keeper would actually top up their Correct. income of course Correct. <laughs> yes. and, and, and as you're aware Veronica there are some situations where when a tenant is receiving job keeper they're receiving more income than they had received previously mm. yes some casual workers have have are better off under job keeper or job seeker um, yes. So, yes, yeah, so you're right. So how to measure that. So, And I know that there was an uproar in Queensland. There was a big petition um, and I understand that that yes. was actually subsequently changed. It was. Um, but so, And I guess this is legislation on the fly, isn't it? I mean, you know, we can all remember basically end of uh, March, early April when there was just daily changes, daily announcements. Uh, the yeah. federal would make an announcement. States have then got to legislate to enact all that stuff. Um, and then in the wings, you've got property managers being asked questions by both their landlords and their tenants as to, well, what does this mean for me? And and I think what you pointed out there, interestingly enough, Lisa, about your example with the tenant that was uh, under pressure and had, had their income impacted. And then you've got la- the landlord yep, and their exactly. family um, also impacted. There's some yep. landlords that have got more capacity to help than others. So there's a bit of an unequal system as well, right? Absolutely. But I would say overall, um, and the REI committee members have 
also confirm this, that landlords have been very generous in, in these situations. Mm. And we feel, I certainly feel, um, that with the 25% qualifying figure, that there's been an acknowledgement by the government that people's expenses have reduced as a result of the shutdown on the 23rd of March. Mm. Have you seen um, just tenants coming back to you and negotiating a better rent mid-contract just because they know that the power's with them a little bit? You know, they can pay a break fee, but, um, you know, if they wanted to re-rent that apartment out right now, it's instead of it being $700 a week, it's $550, let us call it. Um, and so, you know, they feel like they're paying over the odds in rent. Have, they, have you seen that happening a little bit where people are just trying their luck in reducing their rent? Absolutely, Chris. <laughs> I'm sure that surprises you. Um, Yeah, we have. Um, And it's quite interesting really because we've simply said to those tenants, well, you've signed a contract um, and therefore the rent remains the same because we, although I do think that the overall um, rentals that we will achieve or the level of rental that we'll be able to to achieve going forward will be affected I suspect and I certainly hope that we'll see um, a a shift um, once we open up again. Obviously, there'll be more demand, so one would expect rents to actually move up slightly again, but maybe not to the levels pre-COVID. So what can landlords do? I mean, other than the obvious, I guess, you know, make sure their property is very well presented, et cetera, et cetera, assuming they bought a decent property in the first place. What can landlords do to make their property more appealing to tenants if they find themselves with a vacant property now? If, if the landlord's in a position to perhaps repaint, recarpet, the same things that we've talked about previously, Veronica, Cleaning up an apartment and making sure that it's nice and fresh is going to be the best way to attract new tenants. If something is tired um, and it's really in need of some TLC, um, then it is certainly going to be one of those properties that is most affected by the um, downward pressure on rents. Yeah, it's at times like now people flight to quality, right? So because there's more than there's lots of choice, and so if it's not really the quality properties out there right now, then you, you kind of, it's a race to the bottom a little bit. Have you seen some massive rent reductions? You know, I know you said roughly about 15, 20% potentially, but have you seen some really big rent reductions in, in some of your properties? Can I just correct you there, Chris? I said eight to 15. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Okay. Yep. That's okay. Uh, we don't want to, the, the market is not collapsing. Uh, we are renting properties and I think the press have ramped up um, what we're seeing on the ground, to be honest. Um, yes, we are seeing adjustments. Probably the price range that's most affected is between about 800 and 1800 a week. And we're mm-hmm. seeing that those properties are probably renting for between 100 and $150 a week, less than what they were pre-COVID. That's quite a big price band though, isn't it? <laughs> From eight to 1800. There's quite a yeah. big disparity in the types of property. I mean, I imagine at one end, you've got sort of the 800 end, you've got a fairly, a pretty nice two bedroom apartment or maybe a three bedroom apartment right up to 1800 would be a house potentially, you know, in a good suburb with a family that could live there. Um, yes. So there's, there's quite a spread in the type of tenants that would go for that sort of property. Very true. Does that make the difference? I mean, is, is, can you see, is there any sort of, can you sort of say, right, well, this, this 
type of person in this type of suburb, this type of property, that is going to be more impacted or it has been more impacted than that type of property in that type of suburb? Is it that easy or is it more granular? I think it's much, it's much more granular than that, Veronica. I think that um, it's all very well to look at vacancy rates, but the reality is that um, when you look at properties on a granular level, you're seeing you, you've got to look at each one individually, you know, what road it's in, um, you know, uh, what, oh, yeah, even to the extent, you know, what condition it's in, um, does it have uh, air conditioning, for example, and that's a big factor at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that quality of the apartment yeah, or the fine. property itself and yeah. also um, uh, the, the way that it is positioned within a suburb or within an area. Yeah, it's like in a hot market, you know, you get to a property and it's a new listing to rent and there's a queue out the door before the property manager's there and, yeah. you know, it's a bit of a fight and, you know, there's six applications on that day, yes. et cetera. So people overlook those things and they're just desperate. They've got to move out of another property. They're not very uncertain. So a lot of those things happen. Anecdotally, I've heard that some people are moving back in home with their parents, um, sure. you know, especially, you know, the... 20s to 30 year olds I guess um have you seen that impacted as well where some of your properties are you know relisting and that person said well I'm not going to renew it because I'm going to move back home very few yeah I think you know once someone moves out of home they'd have to be pretty desperate to go back (laughs) Mm. although I've actually heard very recently, I, we actually bought two properties in the last week and both of them, it was interesting the fact that, and I had no idea about this before we bought them, it was only after we bought them that the vendors sort of shared this. One, it was a five-bedroom home. Uh, they lived there for 37 years. They um, decided five weeks earlier to put their property on the market because um they just realised they wanted to change. And I think sort of COVID has, has or the lockdown, I should say, has um, spurred a lot of us to sort of rethink what's important to us. And they realised that at their age, you know, they wanted to free themselves up a bit so that they've got more time to do other things and, and sort of more money to do other things. But they'd had three of their adult children move back home with their partners and grandkids through the lockdown and that was a deliberate decision because they they wanted to actually be locked down together and then there was um so I'm presuming that you know the adult children didn't necessarily uh, relinquish a tenancy I'm not sure whether that happened or not but they probably just locked up their own homes and moved in there so that was a family decision because they wanted to be close to each other and then another one we bought two days later um, where they had at the very beginning of the lockdown were going to list their property and decided not to and then ultimately decided to do it again. And their reasoning was that they'd had their, two of their adult children move home during the lockdown and then they realised that when the, the restrictions ease and their kids move back out again that the house was too big for them and they didn't want to be alone in that mm. house anymore. So it was yeah. sort of an interesting, mm. you know, I had never perceived that you'd be, you'd be thinking that that people on the verge of retirement or closer, you know, closer retirement would start thinking about downsizing at this precise time because of COVID. I can, I can understand that because I think it's made people think about their priorities. Um, mm-hmm. I certainly have clients where their children have moved home um, as, a, as a result of, of COVID. Um, some of those have come from overseas and, and therefore it's obviously convenient to move back in with their parents for a, a period of time. Um, 
But but overall, I think haven't we all started to think about things differently? Haven't we all started to decide what our priority yeah. are, particularly from a family perspective? It's very true. And what what I thought was interesting, particularly these two examples, was that it wasn't the financial decision that made the kids move home. Yeah. Um, it was it was a lockdown decision. And, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, and if you don't like your family, you moved out for other reasons, and there's no way in a million years you, you're gonna move, you're gonna rush back home. Well, exactly, exactly. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. One of the interesting things you mentioned early on, which we kind of just scooted over, um, was around the work from home sort of renters preferences potentially are changing in terms of they need some space to you know set up the laptop not on the uh kitchen bench etc have you seen that you know that's really come up the priority list of what the renters preferences are um you know quite significantly or do you think it's a little bit too much hype i i think we'll see that later chris i think that um for now um, people are kind of betting in really and those decisions I think will be made later and it, it will also mm. depend on how employers respond to that aspect yeah. of people working as well. I, I think that's probably more of a, a long-term shift rather than what we will see in the marketplace right now. But certainly if um, people are in a position to move, like you know they've got good jobs, yeah. they're able to um, financially uh, handle the moving costs, etc. It's a good time for them to move because obviously um, there is uh, so there's some bargains on the market. Yeah, I like how your answer there. It's, it's not right now. It might be in the future because I think a lot of people mm. are, are so certain that the work from home thing is going to stick and that employers are definitely, you know, on mass going to change all their work based policies and allow people to work from home. You know, 80 percent of the time. Mm. It very much likely could happen on mass. Uh, and it's looking like that, but we don't really know yet. And so I think it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, um, if people are investing with certainty, knowing that this work from home movement is going to be, everyone's going to be doing it in, you know, in 12 months time, just got to be a little bit careful. Cause I don't think it's really certain yet. I don't either. And I think as an employer myself, there are yeah. certain things that you have to consider about people working from home uh, and and the responsibilities that you have as an employer. Mm. It's not the supervision so much. It's, okay, well, if someone is working from home um, and they're using their own electricity and um, they are, um, you know, setting up their own spaces, for example, how, how, what does that mean for the employer? What, what responsibility does the employer have to reimburse those costs? Mm. So... I'm curious to know, obviously, you know, there's there's properties available for rent at the moment. You've, you've got high vacancy rates, so obviously those properties are out there available for rent. Who is actually looking for new rentals in this current market? People with stable jobs. And if, if you think about the industries that have done well during this period, there, there are an, a number. Um, people in the medical industry, for example, or IT have done very well. So those people are certainly looking for opportunities to 
improve their their lifestyle by by moving to a better quality property and potentially at a at the same price of rent that they're currently paying. So that's more the motivation then for people who are actually looking for a rental at the moment. It's it's really about improving their or trading up, improving their what they get for their money. Yes, but then if you think about our portfolio, which is um, close to the city, inner west, eastern suburbs, lower north shore, um, those types of people are, uh, or the people that we're dealing with, and obviously with the average rental on our portfolio being eight fifty a week, um, we're certainly not seeing the the people who are in financial distress moving. Uh, to a cheaper property. I know it is happening. Of course, it's happening. That's logical. But I'm not seeing a great number of those people. And so let's say uh, it's July now, uh, you know, two months time, JobKeeper is potentially going to be finishing. Mm. Um, How is that going to, you know, potentially play into the rental reductions? Because if if people have been successful in qualifying because they've had a 25% drop in household income, which I think is the rules... How long does that, how much rent reduction do they get? Is it equal to how much their income has dropped or does it last forever? What happens if their income drops even further or it goes up? Like how are all these future challenges with rentals going to be managed? Is there like a set structure? Absolutely not. I think that's part of the yeah. problem that is that, no. is that we have negotiated um, every uh tenant who's come forward to to request rent relief has been negotiated individually it is not yeah it's not a, a blanket solution and and there isn't for obvious reasons because you know you've got those sole traders who are getting job keeper you've got people who don't qualify for job keeper and job seeker you've got yeah. um people whose whose wages have been um cut by 20 percent uh, we've got tenants whose commissions have just not been paid, which I thought was quite interesting. I didn't think that was legal. So so in terms of where we go forward, I, when we came into this at the beginning or end of March and we looked at what we would need to do to manage these situations, we didn't have any legislation uh, until the, the 15th of April. So we were flying blind at least until that yeah. point. So once we got that first piece of legislation, Again, everything was so uncertain that we were actually negotiating quite short outcomes, let's say four weeks. Um, as it's gone on, we've actually ended up negotiating longer uh, periods of relief because it's quite obvious with the shutdown slowly being reversed that people are not going to be getting back to jobs normally in a short space of time. Uh, I think when you look at JobKeeper um, perhaps coming off uh, offline in September. We, we don't know the answer to that yet. In my opinion, really, is it, it comes down to how much uh, of a um, return to normality we will res- we will see by September. And what I mean by that is, hospitality workers are not going to get back to normal until there are no social distancing requirements within those uh, venues. So, yeah. um, unless we, by the time we get to September, we're we're back to no distancing, then there will be an impact on people's employment mm. in, in retail, in hospitality, and, and of course, then we have the travel aspect. So, so there's going to be, I think, a longer period of um, getting back to normal, but which is obvious, right? But there's a long time between now and September in terms of what's happening in Victoria. Um, we just don't yeah. know what's going to happen here, and we're we're being told that. 
cases will increase, but we're not seeing that in New South Wales at this point in time. And then we've seen this spike, spike in, in Victoria. Yeah. So there's a lot to play out between now and when JobKeeper is supposed to um, come offline. I think the situation in Victoria, and of course we're, we're recording this at the very beginning of July, um, you know, I think there was this morning I saw there's something like 32 suburbs in in Melbourne that are in lockdown now. Yeah. Um, and it's a good warning for us all that, you know, because a lot of people have been saying, oh, post-COVID, we're in post-COVID now. It's like, well, actually, no, we're not. We're just po- we're in, in New South Wales anyway. We're post-lockdown. Yeah. Um, but we're definitely not post-COVID. This is actually no. a real thing we're going to live with until either there's herd immunity uh, or there's a, uh, a vaccine um, or treatment. But the, the thing is that with the herd immunity, uh, who was it? I was listening to something recently. There's something like in America and the UK that even with the sheer amount of cases that they've had, there's still only something like 15% of people have actually got immunity. So, you know, so it's pretty devastating um, strategy to, to go down that path thinking we're going to get herd immunity. So I think that we have to accept that life is not going to go back to normal for some period of time and definitely not before September. So then it's a matter of, of accepting that there are going to be some people that are going to be impacted long term, whereas other and the knock the knock on effect of that, the domino effect of that. Um, have you sort of done any, I mean, I'm, I'm asking you a completely off the cuff question <laughs> here and, and you probably have no idea you may or may not have an idea, but have you sort I of have ident- identified a proportion of your um, your property management portfolio that is going to be hit post September or have continued pressure on it? Have yeah. you have you done that? Oh, it's pretty hard to do that, but mm. we certainly would. My opinion is okay. So if you look at our portfolio, we manage five hundred properties about. Uh, 20% of those uh, tenancies actually requested rent relief. About 25% -hmm. of those didn't qualify. Um, And then we had, I would say, quite a small proportion of those, probably 10%, where they were quite drastically affected and the rest of them were moderately affected. So I guess when you look at that, my, my view going forward is there's no question that we will continue to be affected, which is likely to be reflected in, in rental levels um, because at the end of the day, it's a supply and demand ratio. If the supply is greater than the demand, well, there's going to be downward pressure on rent and the supply has been affected, or sorry, the demand has been affected by so many different things as we've discussed already around you know, Chris, you mentioned immigration. There's so many people in this city that actually come from overseas. So we're talking about students as well. Without those people coming back into the rental space, the, um, the, the supply is no doubt going to continue to outstrip the demand. So you've just to do a little bit of quick maths of, you know, you said, um, of your 500, um, properties under management, roughly 2%, if I've got it right, um, of the tenants are going to have long-term or have had severe to moderate um, impact. And that's the tenant side of the equation. Then you've got the landlord side of the equation that um, may or may not have had severe to moderate impact. You may not know that. You may not be privy to that information. But have you impact to landlords has been on the, on the low side, to be fair. Okay. And this is important conversation. And I know that we're only talking in a fairly affluent area. I get that. I get that this is, um, you know, this is limited in its application, but it is good to talk 
to this um, to these numbers and 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 fact here uh, in mm. terms of personal experience because there is a lot of fear mongering going on around this. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that, Veronica. And you know, I can actually speak to that in in the context of discussing what um, the other. Uh, chapter members are experiencing um, the REI chapter members because it's very different. Um, mm. you know, for example, our vacancy rate finished up at two point three percent at the end of June, um, which that, is quite good. It's pretty good. Hey, yeah, pretty it's, happy with that. Yeah, I'm very happy with that because it was five point four percent in May. Now, when I spoke to members of the committee, uh, um, obviously I referred to the the guy who is in in uh, the CBD most affected Um, but when you talk to um, property managers in Parramatta or further out the number of requests for rent relief was actually very low and for example uh, my colleague in in Parramatta's vacancy rate is one percent wow so we are really talking about yes I know we are talking about a lot of people who have been affected but it is in in every city in in Australia it's been condensed to close to the city and, and, and we're talking, and this is a, I was funnily having a discussion with one of my team only this week about, you know, in Sydney, it's like, you know, do we, are we in a Sydney, in a city um, property buyers? And I was like, well, not really, because we don't actually focus on the inner city. We focus on the inner ring, you know, so inner city as in, well, Darlinghurst is inner city, but not the actual city itself. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and I don't think I've actually ever bought a property in the city. Um, so it is interesting and, and for lots of reasons and one, one is risk and yes. seriously, we, I guess we're seeing that played out at the moment because if, if you move out to that inner ring, it doesn't have the same vacancy rate as the actual city, right? Correct. And I think you're seeing very similar things in Melbourne. I remember I saw some stats last week where, you know, Melbourne CBD, Docklands, Southbank um, were really smashed in terms of the amount of vacancies down there because they've got a lot more sort of residential apartments kind of in that inner ring. Um, have you have you seen those numbers as well? And sort of, do you think it's very similar down in Melbourne? Yeah, I've actually looked, looked them up, um, and I, I, yeah. Brisbane as well. And it, it's 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 yeah. the same, yeah. um, but lower numbers. For example, uh, Melbourne CBD vacancy rate um, in May was six point seven percent. In Melbourne North, it was two point one. So mm-hmm. right. you're seeing that repetition of um, the inner city suburbs being far more affected and the CBD particularly. And But this is the thing though, these were always, you know, they've been underperforming as investments for years. Yeah. You know, this, this isn't anything new. This is just kicking people when they're already down really because they've already made really bad decisions in the first place. Mm. Are you seeing, um, have you seen any of your landlords decide to sell? I'm starting to see that now. I think landlords, uh, some landlords feel that the opportunity is there right now because stock levels are so low. Um, mm. I haven't seen anyone sell for financial reasons. Um, I have got a, a client who is looking to explore uh, an off-market um, sale. Because they were so scarred by the rent relief process with, with their tenant, so okay. what happened? Can you give a uh, you know obviously without revealing specific names. details? Can you give a story? <laughs> Tell us the story. Yeah, uh, look, I think this this is actually I'll, I'll I'll speak about it kind of generally where you have a tenant because this has happened in a number of cases and it's a very difficult situation to negotiate when 
the tenant simply feels that they are entitled to rent relief and they're earning a lot of money. Let's say they're earning somewhere between, you know, two hundred and six hundred thousand dollars a year, and their mm. income has been temporarily affected. That they s- simply say, "Well, we need a fifty percent rent reduction now, and we need it for you know three or six months." And yeah. the landlord is actually not in as as strong a financial position, and the landlord says, "Well, a we can't afford that, and b." Um, do they qualify? And the unfortunate point there is that they do qualify. You can imagine if someone, I don't know, let's say that they were a, a surgeon or something like that, and mm, yep. the, the, the the hospitals closed and they did elective surgery. Hospitals yep. are closed. They actually can't work for, for let's say, yep. two months. So their income is affected and they can get JobKeeper. And so yep. when you put all that together, how do you negotiate an outcome that is acceptable to both parties? And unfortunately, these, these people who are on very high incomes who've been affected don't find that, let's say, a 25% reduction in their rent is acceptable. So, uh, <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, and I also, to be honest, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a personality factor there. We had one tenant who actually just decided to vacate because he didn't get what he wanted. But if you stacked the numbers up on what we were offering and what he was going to have to pay in a break fee, he was prepared to pay twice as much in a break fee as the deferment that we had asked him to pay. So it wasn't a financial decision at all. Mm. It was just about winning. It was. And have you seen um, tenants potentially just not pay or go into arrears because of this battle or this negotiation potentially? Yes. is not really lining up, you know, landlords willing to offer a pretty big discount, but the tenant wants more and yes. um, then they just don't pay rent. Are you able to actually kick people out of their homes? You know, it's not in, a, not in a bad way. I'm not saying that, but in terms of where you've got a tenant that's potentially over many months, not paying rent, um, um, are you able to kind of call it, a, you know, end it or are you actually yes. right now, you really have to not allow them to, to leave? I know we, we, we've certainly, uh, we don't call it kicking people out, Chris. I just need to. Yeah, I, I, was kind of saying that. I said that, you know, in terms of the way where it's kind of like, you know, they're really holding the house and they're not paying their rent and it gets to this real battle over many months. You're trying to make something work. And, you know, the only thing is to really is to go to tribunal to get them out, you know, and that's well, I unfortunately think, what has to happen. Yeah, I would suggest to you that a, a skilled property manager is experienced at negotiation i mean this is a whole other level of negotiation but i Mm. would be disappointed um, if i wasn't able to manage a tenant out if that were the situation Um, we Mm. have had tenants who have stopped paying rent because they don't feel that the relief being offered by the landlord is sufficient but there's a process that you go through of explaining to them what is reasonable of what is not reasonable what the legislation says what it doesn't say we also have um, a facility that's available with uh, fair trading, which is a mediation process. So when I've when I've gotten to the point with perhaps someone who is who's been really unreasonable, then I suggest that they contact fair trading. And to be fair, fair trading has um, been very supportive in understanding what property managers are going through and also advising tenants that they are being unreasonable and that they should accept what the landlord is offering. So we've certainly used fair trading um, mediation. Uh, In fact, I haven't actually mediated. I've just got the tenant to call and 
or, or a submit documentation um, to Fair Trading and Fair Trading have turned around and said, I don't know what you're complaining about. Is that a change? I mean, have you experienced that before with Fair Trading? I think that with Fair Trading uh, and NCAT that the attitude towards property managers in the past has not been very generous Uh, and what I'm finding now is that when we speak to Fair Trading or if we're at NCAT that their their level of uh, empathy is, is much greater and that they appreciate that these are difficult situations and that we have been put in a position where um, you know, we're trying to negotiate outcomes that are that are tricky, and also learn new legislation, as well as deal with people's um, emotional states. Mm. It's very encouraging because you know there's been a lot of press recent times. I know that you know in Victoria there's new tenancy laws in in New South Wales. There's been new tenancy laws. I think so in Queensland as well. Um, and there's been certainly a lot of press amongst. The, in the property industry to say how unfair it is towards landlords and it's very tenant focused. Mm. And, and I get there's got to be a balance. Absolutely. Yeah. There's got to be a balance, but it is sort of interesting to see that, that you're in your experience, you're finding there's a lot more support and the attitude uh, through this time, because we, you know, anecdotally once again, and you hear the odd story about tenants refusing to pay rent and then, and then the big fight that comes about that, um, and but I would think, and I would like to think, that's a minority of people that are trying to take advantage of a situation. Yes, I would agree with that. Mm. And so, what? How? I mean, can you use the word evict? I mean, and yes. what? Under what conditions? Because wasn't there sort of a, a, a stop being put on evictions yeah. um, through yeah. this period? So basically, for six months, you couldn't evict um, from non-payment of rent. From what I understand, can you clarify mm-hmm. that for us? Yeah, I can. That's actually not not quite correct. So what happened when when they brought the legislation out on the fourteenth uh, of April? Basically, there was a stay on issuing termination notices to COVID-affected tenants um, right. for that 60-day period. And that 60-day period was designed to enable um, property managers and tenants to negotiate an outcome. Now, if that couldn't be negotiated um, by, uh, I think it was the, oh, what would that have been? I can't remember the date now. It was mid, mid-May. Um, yeah. oh, sorry, mid-June. Mid-June, my apologies. Um, I think it was the 14th of June that we were actually able to issue termination notices again, but that meant that the tenant would have to be over 14 days in arrears and that we would have tried to have negotiated out an outcome with a COVID-affected tenant. So, yes, we can issue termination notices now, and we have done, Mm. but we also issued termination notices during that 60-day stay period because if a tenant was not able to demonstrate that they were COVID affected, then under the legislation, we were still able to issue a termination notice. Okay. So did you have, did any of those people actually vacate or did they sort of pull their heads in? Uh, A bit of both. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because what we tried to do was not come at it with a sledgehammer. And and what we tried to do is obviously um, work with our tenants to let them know that we were trying to negotiate an outcome. But for example, we had one tenant who was, uh, the the client offered to reduce his rent, this was in Waterloo, by $90 a week for the rest of his tenancy, which was six months. And because his housemate uh, had moved out, 
um, but yeah. never able to provide information to us that, that was directly related to COVID. Uh, mm. Then he simply stopped paying his rent um, mm. and he's very aggressive, very uh, unhappy with the process generally. Uh, and at the end of the day, it was not commercial to keep him in the property because he was re- yep. refusing to pay rent. So we issued the termination notice, he vacated the property, uh, and we will um, be taking that matter to tribunal. I was in Alexandria yesterday, just walking on the street, and it looked like the entire contents of an apartment had been basically dumped on the side of the street for oh, council wow. pickup. Right. And I just went... At first, it was like, oh, this is disgusting. And then I was like, oh, dear, that looks like it might be somebody's being forcibly removed. Does that mm. happen very often? No, no. I've been doing this for 16 years and I've actually only been in that situation once and it was a really long time ago, thank thank goodness. Um, look, I think, yes, there are probably areas where that is more likely to occur, as in you know, lower socioeconomic areas, but it's it's pretty drastic to have to evict someone. And mm. I think that from my perspective, it's always better to negotiate an outcome than to actually go to eviction. And, and that comes around to um, explain to the tenant that perhaps they need to find a property that is lower in rent uh, to enable them to be able to comply with the residential tenancy agreement, which is going to be a better situation for them overall mm. because who wants to be hassled by the property manager all the time about non-payment of rent? Um, I think it also comes back even further when you start the process of finding a tenant and obviously finding a good quality tenant who can pay the rent um, who is actually going to behave appropriately in that circumstance. So, for example, if someone's been made redundant, you don't want to be, you don't want to take them to tribunal for an eviction. That's just actually a really unpleasant way to, to finish the relationship. Mm. Which leads us perfectly, perfect segue to Dumbo of the week. Have you got a property Dumbo for us, a lesson that we can all learn from? Oh, what, like the one when uh, that my client bought a property with no kitchen sink? <laughs> <laughs> And the one where my, my friend bought a property with no oven. <laughs> now, let's talk about that because, you know, in all, in all fairness, she's talking about me in both cases. <laughs> so, can I just say, both of those properties have rented out extremely well over the years and no doubt the capital appreciation you've achieved is awesome. <laughs> well, I, I did have to buy an oven. So that was an apartment in Bondi Beach that I bought some years back. Who needs an oven? I never actually noticed that it only had a microwave and a hot plate. I didn't actually notice that it um, didn't have an oven at all. And uh, <laughs> But you know why? And a bit like with the house in Alexandria with the, the kitchen sink. You know, there is a kitchen sink. It's just in the laundry, which is sort of open and directly adjacent to the kitchen. And you know what? I didn't notice it. The building inspector didn't notice it. It was only when the painter came in to paint it. I went there before you settled on it and I didn't notice it either. I didn't notice it either. You know, it's a gestalt theory where you fill in the gaps. Correct. You know, a a kitchen has a sink, doesn't it? So you don't even think, where is it? So, 
but in that case, um, yeah, it was the painter that actually noticed it purely because he needed a sink yeah. to wash his brushes yeah. in. He yeah. said, don't you realise you don't have a kitchen sink? In that in that particular property, I bought that property always with the intention of renovating it. Mm. And I did a tart up, as you as you will well recall, to rent it out in the short yeah. term. I don't know when I'm going to renovate that property, but I'm well, going yeah. to renovate I mean, it one day. You haven't needed to because we've had it consist- consistently rented. Yeah. You purchased it. Yeah. And it's, and, and it's, in, it's in good condition as opposed to the one in Newtown that I bought that time. But um, but the thing is with that one, um, yeah, that, that is quite funny because, you know, it's a bit like the, the, the mechanic's car. You know, the mechanic will drive around with the bomb that keeps breaking down and, and that's a really good example that even a buyer's agent should actually engage a buyer's agent. <laughs> well, as you said, you, you fill in the gaps, right? And um, and I guess, you know, you really to avoid that, you have to have a checklist that says is there, a, is there a sink and is there an oven, you know, like obviously it would never happen again. But I- Well, there is a checklist. It's on the front page of the contract. It does say oven. <laughs> But I think I think that if you talk about you know properties that um, we potentially manage that are just like every single time you go oh what it's going to be a problem um, there's going to be issues with the tenancy there'll be maintenance um, or it's just difficult to rent because it's got some big factor that is is uh, is going to be a, a big cost for tenants and um, I think that comes back to Veronica what you do with. Um, looking at quality properties uh, to purchase rather than cheap properties. A cheap property is always a cheap property and that mm. comes to the rental market as well. So if you've got something that is dark or has, um, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with a small second bedroom but it depends on the area that you're in, mm. uh, dark and no balcony I think are two factors that um, that I'd be really careful of. Um, I happen to own a property with no balcony and actually it's rented out very well over the years, but um, the capital appreciation has been, I'd say, average. Yeah. It's a really good point, actually. You know, like if you're going to buy an investment, one of your biggest risks initially is cash flow um, and making sure that, you know, you can pay your mortgage and, you know, you're not going to, if there's anything that pops up, you know, you can repair it, et cetera. Um, and so buying a quality asset, you know, you're more likely to get a quality tenant, you're more likely to get competition. Um, and so you can really shoot yourself in the foot by not only getting buying a poor asset, but then when you go to the rental market, you know, it gets vacancy, it maybe doesn't rent, you know, damage, et cetera. So oh, a lot of people don't put those well. two connections together. Yeah, high, high turnover as well. And I think that, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, you've really got to consider those things when you're buying an investment and, uh, you know, the, the location of the property is key. Um, I know Veronica hates properties on main roads. I think that's um, that's another one that you, you would really want to avoid. So there, there's, there's some pretty big factors there that you can easily avoid. But I, I would always caution that if, if something looks cheap, that there's a reason for it to be cheap. Um, yeah. it, it's not that you're getting a good deal. No. At least I, was, I was meant to ask earlier on around the state government um, providing, you know, additional assistance to, you know, renters and landlords. Um, I know there's some reductions in uh, land tax, for example, but is there anything else that, you know, people can apply for and then get are eligible for and then can receive money from the state government? Uh, I think you're referring to landlords there, Chris. Uh, no, yeah. 
that's it. And if you look at New South Wales, uh, only 16% of landlords actually pay land tax. Yeah. When you refer to the relief that they uh, potentially receive, um, yep. there are certain hoops that they have to jump through and, and the actual benefit that they would receive is really only a rebate of 25%. So if you look yep. in the city properties, let's say, for example, on smaller parcels of land where the land tax is yeah. $4,000, yep. you're yep. talking about $1,000 uh, in terms of what they might get back, but they have to obviously pass that on to the tenant first and then provide all the documentation to Revenue New South Wales yeah. by the COVID affected and all of that sort of thing. And I'm certainly seeing that some clients are coming back to me saying, well, if we've only given relief for two months, Revenue New South Wales don't actually see that as being long enough. I'm not quite sure why they feel yeah, like okay. a measure. Yeah. So I think in Victoria, it's, you know, I don't expect you to know all the different states, but I think in Victoria they're providing up to $2,000, I believe, and I think other states are doing, you know, different things. That's but, actually, yeah, that's yeah. correct, Chris, and New South Wales decided. So that was a, that was a, um, a, a national government um, directive um, or piece of legislation, and the states actually had the option of taking it up, um, and New South Wales decided not to. So the REI has been lobbying the government to try and understand why uh, owners in New South Wales aren't entitled to this two thousand dollars. Yeah, right. Well, these issues are potentially going to continue, right? You know, especially in Victoria. Um, you know, with what's happening and potentially here again. You know, we just don't know. So I think that mm. the whole negotiation around leases and releasing, and um, you know, you've got your work cut out for some time. I imagine because it's been probably a, a crazy period for you. It's been a very uh, challenging period, but I must say I've learned a huge amount uh, during this time and mm. our team have been absolutely amazing in, uh, you know, working from home and being flexible and, you know, stepping up when it was required because, you know, one of the most difficult things during this period has been renting properties because we had a, a time where we actually couldn't go into properties that were tenanted. So those properties we couldn't access until they were vacant uh, created uh, a scenario where we had to go, well, we need to get these properties rented as quickly as we possibly can. So I, I made a, a measure and I was like, okay, well, these properties need to be shown four times every week. So the team was super busy showing all of those properties and and the available stock stock increased for us at that time as well. Well, it has definitely been a challenging time and it looks like it's not over and certainly there's going to be onward pressure, downward pressure on rents for a while, I would say. So, look, we really appreciate you coming along today, Lisa, and explaining, I guess, the differences, um, I guess, so let's say that again. I really appreciate you, Lisa, coming along today and explaining to us how the legislation has been um, rolled out, if you like, in New South Wales, but also touching on those other states and understanding to the different areas and types of tenants and types of landlords that have been more affected uh, throughout this whole lockdown procedure. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much, Lisa. Yeah, I think there's been lots of fear-mongering in the press around vacancies and yeah. uh, you don't buy an investment property right now because you won't be able to rent it, um, which isn't really true. Definitely. A lot of that comes down to the quality of the asset, et cetera. Um, and there's still people out there needing to rent properties and swapping properties. So, you know, I guess it's kind of dig a bit deeper on here. And then if you are a landlord that's or a, or a renter that's been affected, speak to your property manager, I guess, is probably the, the takeaway and actually start the negotiation rather than 
um, you know, put your head in the sand. Definitely. Thanks, guys. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Well, let's pick up on something that we touched on in this interview with Lisa, and that is about cash flow for property investors. And Chris, you're better equipped to really, I guess, give us some good tips on this. How can investors better manage their cash flow? And what are the things they need to know about before they buy an investment property? So I think there's a few stages. There's the initial stage, just making sure you can settle on the property and then get it rented out. Sometimes it can take a little bit longer than expected. You know, might have to tidy some things up and it might not rent straight away. But ongoing, the, the, you know, there's two sides of the equation. There's the rental income. It's trying to maximise that every year if you can, um, you know, being conscious of the tenant's needs and, and the market, but also limit vacancy. So if you can do those two things, you've got rent coming in all the time. That's part of the equation. Then it's your expenses. And really the big expense you should always be thinking about is your interest rate because that's going to be your number one expense. And whether your investment property is principal and interest or interest only. And that will have a huge impact on your cash flow. And then the final part of it is the maintenance of the property. You know, if you buy, for example, a strata unit in an Art Deco block that's well maintained, yep, there might not be much maintenance, you know, every year. But I guess if you buy like a rundown house, you know, you might need a new roof, new decking. So being aware of your maintenance long term is is something you need to know before you buy the property. Yeah, and there are other costs um, involved in running a property, that, such as uh, insurance, for instance. And certainly if you're paying strata levies, that's a way of actually budgeting for that maintenance. And if you add in all those types of costs, uh, roughly speaking, you'd be looking around 22 to 24% of the rental income typically is the sort of uh, cost allocation for all of those other roughly 22 to 24% of the revenue or the rental income does go out in those other incidental costs and those, those very um, very real costs of owning a property. So they've got to be taken into account as well. Yeah, I think a lot of people like to take mental shortcuts. So they'll look at a property and then they'll compare which one's a better property based on what the strata costs. And unfortunately, um, how much that strata costs doesn't really determine which one's a better property or not. It's how much is the sinking fund, what conditions they're building in. You know, paying a bit more strata is not the end of the world and actually sometimes it's a good thing for your long-term capital value. So um, just be a little bit careful on trying to always minimise costs like strata costs. In our next episode, one of my favourite topics, the pain and gain report. We are joined by Eliza Owen of CoreLogic and we're talking about the most recent report, which is all about the March 2020 quarter. How many properties in Australia sold at a loss and have we seen the impact of COVID creeping into those sales? You need to join us to find out. It's fascinating stuff. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team would love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, 
wealthful.com.au. If you're a first-home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.